This morning we um, embark in a new season at North Holland. We are uh, post-Easter now, and so we're going to spend some time over the next few months through the summer months in the Old Testament narratives, specifically following Elijah and Elisha. Elijah and Elisha are both prophets, and so we'll spend time in 1 Kings, and we'll start with 1 Kings 17 this morning. But maybe we might wonder, why are we studying the prophets? Why, why are they a big deal in the first place? Why is this worth so much of our time? Well, one, there's a practical reason. Um, as we come into the summer months, we know the reality. People will come and go, and so there's something helpful about following a narrative where you can follow Elijah and Elisha. Maybe you're gone on vacation for a week or two. Um, you can pick up where you left off. You can read the story that you missed. Um, and we'll try to build all of the cases of Elijah and Elisha's ministry throughout this series. But Elijah especially is a central figure in Scripture, in the Old and New Testaments. In Lent, some of you asked the question, well, what on earth is meant when, when, when John the Baptist and Jesus first show up on the scene, people ask questions like, is this Elijah or are you the one to come? People wonder if John the Baptist is Elijah. John the Baptist himself wonders and asks if Jesus is Elijah or if he's the one to come when John is in prison. Why is it that when the disciples, Peter, James, and John, are with Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration, it is Moses and Elijah who appear with Christ in this glorious view into heaven. What Moses is to the law, Elijah is to the prophets. And so it is that Elijah becomes a central figure mentioned again and again. In the book of James, when we talk about prayers made in faith, the book of James uses Elijah as the example, and that example is the specific story that we're going to read today in 1 Kings 17, verses 1 through 6. Knowing Elijah and Elisha, understanding the ministry of a prophet, uh, helps us understand Scripture in its greater narrative, and it helps us make sense of why these characters keep getting talked about, why they keep coming up. And I hope there's something for us as we read these as well. So we'll be in 1 Kings 17. So we'll be in the Old Testament. So as you kind of flip through um, the first five books of the law, Joshua, Judges, and then it's the books of history. It's First and Second Samuel and then First Kings. Chronicles comes right after it. But we're about in the first, I, I, five out of every four people have trouble with fractions. I'm thinking we're in like the first sixth of the Bible. And so First Kings chapter 17, we'll just be looking at verses 1 through 6 this morning. Uh, but we will back up later on into chapter 16 as well. But before we come to God's word, before we begin our journey with the prophets, let's pray. Lord, may your word come to us. May your word come to us in its written form, that we may read it with our eyes, process it with our minds, and let it take root in our hearts. May your word come to us through the Holy Spirit, illuminating the written word to us. May your presence, O Christ, for you are the word made flesh, may your presence come and dwell among us. Lord, may your word come to us and by your Holy Spirit give strength to the weak, conviction to the uncertain, hope to the destitute. 
confidence to the timid, healthy hesitation to the headstrong, and a fitting breath of life to all God's people. May your word come to us, O Lord. Amen. 1 Kings chapter 17, verses 1 through 6. Now Elijah the Tishbite from Tishbe in Gilead said to Ahab, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives, whom I serve, there will be neither dew nor rain in the next few years, except at my word. Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah, Leave here, turn eastward and hide in the Kareth Ravine, east of the Jordan. You will drink from the brook, and I have ordered the ravens to feed you there. So he did what the Lord had told him. He went to the Kareth Ravine, east of the Jordan, and stayed there. The ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning, and bread and meat in the evening, and he drank from the brook. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Imagine, if you can, living in a nation that is fiercely divided. Competing worldviews have neighbors strongly disagreeing and fighting with their neighbors. There's serious questions of different political leaders and different levels of politics. Some say follow, others say condemn. And in addition to political turmoil, there are also uh, social problems, religious problems, general mishealth in society. Imagine, if you can, this land where there are lots of enemies to be afraid of and lots of people telling you to be afraid of these enemies. Some are within your borders, some are far away, but not too far away. Scary people who want to destroy your nation, pillage your village, so to speak, and take away everything that you hold dear. There's fights about religion. There's fights about how to worship God, when and where, and and what God are we even worshiping. Imagine, if you can, living in such a divided place. And of course, I'm talking about Israel in the 9th century B.C., Israel and Judah, nine centuries before Christ appears, and just wondering, what would it be like to live in such a world? Because this is the world that Elijah is born into. This is the world where Ahab is king. And maybe when we describe it in its full context, it doesn't seem so unfamiliar to the reality that we live in in our world every day. Fierce division, division, hatred, fear, religious, social, societal problems. As we read Scripture together, the more important question, the most important question for us is, what does it look like to faithfully follow God in such a world? What does it look like to faithfully follow God in such a world of turmoil and disagreement and hatred? Elijah answers that question for us. And I hope we have something to learn, something we pick up on from following Elijah and Elisha in the world that they were born into and so that we can learn from them how do we faithfully follow God in our world, in our day and age. Hence is our study of the prophets, these central prophets to the Old Testament. And by their actions, they foreshadow Christ's coming 
in many, many ways. When Pastor Audrey and I sat down and just read through all of the Elijah and Elisha stories, it was mind-blowing how many times you can see a reference towards Christ coming out of these prophets. And so we got kind of excited about this series. Elijah and Elisha will show us by their example how to be godly in a world where there are competing and, yes, sometimes confusing options for what it looks like to be godly. But maybe before we can appreciate these prophets in particular, we need to understand what prophets do in the Old Testament. Now, there's, there's three offices in the Old Testament of prophet, priest, and king. I was quizzing Jed for his polity and standards exam for his ordination, and I asked him what the three offices were, and I was looking for elder, deacon, and minister, and he said prophet, priest, and king, so um, smart aleck answer. You win, though. Good, good points. Try that at your classes exams. But prophet, priest, and king, elder, deacon, minister, those are the offices of the church. But prophet, priest, and king are the three offices of the Old Testament. Say, say those with me. Prophet, priest, and king. And the king was ordained by God to rule over the land. And in so doing, yes, the king got to, to be the royal face of the nation. And the king would oversee military campaigns. And the king would secure the borders. But the king also had to rule using God's law as the rule of the land. And that meant also things to rule in righteousness and justice. And righteousness and justice are inseparable in Old Testament law. Righteousness and justice had to be at the center of the king's rule, and it had to be based on God's law. And that included things like, how do we treat foreigners who live among us? Do we treat the alien and the orphan and the widow well? Do we treat outsiders well? Because we're reminded that we, the people of Israel, were outsiders when we left Egypt. Care for the people of your nation, according to God's law, meant making sure that people were cared for in a society that was meant to bless those who were created in the image of God, which was all people. That was the role of the king. The priests were the religious face, coming from the tribe of Levi, the the descendants of Aaron. And the priests were to offer sacrifices, were to lead the people in worship of God. So when we fall into sin, you go to the priest, you offer your sacrifice, grain and meat, different burnt offerings and incense, grain offerings. They led the people through different festivals that taught them the story of God's unfolding revelation to them. The king was to rule. The priests were to oversee the worship of God and the offerings to God and the sacrifices to God, first in the tabernacle and then in the temple. Then the prophets. The third office is different because priests came from a certain tribe and kings came from a lineage. So there was David and then there was Solomon. There is Jeroboam and Rehoboam. We'll get to Jehoshaphat and Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat and Jehoshaphat, two different people. There's some tongue twisters throughout Kings and Chronicles. But the prophets don't come from a bloodline. They don't come all from the same tribe. The prophets simply show up on the scene when the word of the Lord comes to them. 
When God's Spirit moves, when the word of the Lord is sent to the prophet, a prophet becomes a prophet. It's not something they're born into. It's not something about being in the right tribe or nationality. A prophet is a prophet when the word of the Lord comes to them and when they act on the word of the Lord. And so it is that the prophet Elijah just shows up almost out of nowhere. Elijah just appears on the scene and speaks to King Ahab and prophesies to him that there will be a drought in the land. Now, we might wonder... How on earth did Elijah, who we've heard nothing about up to this point, suddenly just have an audience with the king of the land, with the king of Israel? Maybe there was a prophetic ministry already at work. Maybe Elijah was already known to King Ahab as other prophets like Obadiah that we'll get to soon are also known. But once again, there's speculation there, not knowledge within the text. And so, as I sometimes joke, many a Ph.D. student has fought their dissertation defending on what exactly was happening before and outside of this point in 1 Kings 17. But what we do know is that if the word of the Lord came to Elijah, and if Elijah was meant to speak to King Ahab, if God ordained that event to happen, then it will happen. Whether it was because he had an audience with him already or just by God's timing, Elijah would appear on the road that King Ahab was traveling on. However it came about, what the word of the Lord ordains to happen, happens. For when the Spirit of God moves, it cannot be stopped or undone. And so the prophets, the priests, and the kings throughout these books of history all interact with each other. Faithful priests and not-so-faithful priests Kings who followed the law of the Lord and kings who did not and who did evil in the eyes of the Lord and grieved God. And prophets, prophets that just show up when the Spirit of the Lord sends them. And that's what ties every prophet together is that the word of the Lord came to them. Isaiah and Jeremiah, Obadiah and Habakkuk, Elijah, Elisha, Samuel, Nathan, John the Baptist, All of these people have one thing in common, that the word of the Lord came to them. And that it wasn't just a word that was meant to be heard and held, but it was a word that was meant to be acted upon. And one thing we can learn right off the bat from just understanding the role of a prophet is the difficulty that they would have that we might take for granted. The word of the Lord comes to the prophets. But there is not yet the written word of the Lord as we think of it. The law exists. The first five books of the Old Testament exist. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. The Pentateuch exists, and there are are written scrolls. There's copies of it, but they're not widely spread. Most people are illiterate. But the Old Testament, as we know it, does not and cannot exist yet because we're still living it. First Kings is unfolding in the days of Elijah. It's not written down. So when the word of the Lord comes to these prophets, it is spoken to them directly. It's not from the Bible that they find the right verse to tell someone. We might take for granted the gift that Scripture is to us, that we have the written word. But when the word of the Lord came to the prophets, it had to be heard by them and acted on them in a very mysterious way. Elijah is one such prophet who knew the law, who was faithful to God, 
and shows up on the scene and spoke the word of the Lord to King Ahab. And Ahab really needed the word of the Lord spoken to him. Let's take a quick look into 1 Kings chapter 16. Beginning at verse 29, we get a sense of who Ahab is. And throughout this series, Ahab is going to keep coming up. And Elijah and Ahab are going to continue to go back and forth with one another. Beginning at verse 29, In the 38th year of Asa, king of Judah, Ahab, son of Omri, became king of Israel, and he reigned in Samaria over Israel 22 years. And Ahab, son of Omri, did more evil in the eyes of the Lord than any of those before him. Okay, so we know a prophet is needed because Scripture is telling us that this is the worst king of Israel yet. Continuing up at verse 31, he not only considered it trivial to commit the sins of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, but he also married Jezebel, daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians, and began to serve Baal and worship him. So Baal worship is another idol, it's another false god that is a contemporary of the Israelites as they're living in the land. And Baal kind of sneaks in here and there, but now Ahab has married the daughter of the king of Sidon, where Baal is the central god, and now the people are going to worship Baal. He, being Ahab, set up an altar for Baal in the temple of Baal that he built in Samaria. So instead of worshiping God in God's temple, now the people are going to worship Baal in a temple that was built for Baal by the Israelites. Ahab also made an Asherah pole and did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than did all the kings of Israel before him. Ahab is a problem. Ahab does not rule or reign according to the word of the Lord, and so God raises up a prophet and sends the prophet Elijah to confront Ahab. I wonder how they got so far. How did they end up at this place where these are the Israelites, these are the people of God, and they're worshiping Baal? It probably started as superstition, just off to the side. The Israelites would know the stories of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of Sarah, Rebecca, Rachel, and Leah. They would know these stories. But when things got tough, maybe they didn't see God, that God, the God of their fathers, showing up in the same way. But, but they heard about Baal, and, and Baal was the god of fertility for the ground and the god of the storms and rain. Baal was assumed was the one who controlled the rain. And so maybe it started out just as superstition, where it was a time where people needed rain. God didn't seem to be making it rain, so they prayed to Baal, and maybe it rained. And maybe there is just enough evidence that what started out as superstition became hard-thought belief. And it became centered in people's lives that, well, Baal must control the rain. Because when we pray to Baal, it rains. So this must work. This God, Baal, must be real. And so Ahab gets more and more entrenched in the worship of Baal. But it wouldn't work if it wasn't for the fact that Israel became prosperous because of this. 
this region of Israel and Samaria is the breadbasket of the region. And so when it rains, they grow crops. And when they grow crops, they eat their fill. And when they eat their fill, then they sell whatever is left to the surrounding areas. And they become wealthy and prosperous. And they gave all the credit to Baal. So Baal becomes a very convenient god to worship. Baal becomes the get-rich-quick scheme of the Old Testament. And it seems to work. Baal is the god of fertility for the ground, though he is male. God And Baal is the god of rain, so they thought. And so, quite literally, it was Baal's blessing upon the ground when his rain came down. And that is what made the ground fertile. That can be taken as literally as you can possibly think of it. And we can talk more about that in Sunday school. So the people begin to worship Baal. Then Elijah shows up. Elijah shows up and has a confrontation with Ahab, albeit brief and a passage of Scripture that we might almost pass over simply. But Elijah does confront Ahab and has a word for him from the Lord. And Elijah's very existence is a confrontation to Ahab in and of himself. Because Elijah's name is from Elohim and Yahweh. Those are both names for God. Elohim, but then Yahweh, the I am who I am. And Elijah is the combination of those two. And what it means is The Lord is God, or possessively, the Lord is my God. So not Baal is God, not Baal is my God, but the Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that Lord, that is my God, and that Lord is God and God alone. Elijah's very name is a confrontation to the way in which Ahab was leading the nation of Israel. His name meant that there is only one God, and that is the God of our fathers, who we need to return to. And so Elijah confronts Ahab and tells him, as the Lord, the God of Israel, as a reminder, the Lord is the God of Israel, not Baal. As the Lord, the God of Israel lives, whom I serve. One more dig that we might pass over too quickly is that Elijah is reminding Ahab that not everyone is following Baal, that there are still those who are standing up for the Lord, the God of Israel. As the Lord, the God of Israel lives, even if we've forgotten about him, he's still alive. That God whom I, Elijah, whom I serve, as long as that God lives, there will be neither dew nor rain in the next few years except at my word. Elijah's confrontation cuts at the very heart of the people's worship of Baal. Because if there's no rain, if there's no dew on the ground, it is dry. And that means Baal has become impotent. That means all of the Baal worship that we can do, all of the sacrifices we can offer to Baal, will do nothing. And Elijah is telling Ahab, I, Elijah, am the gatekeeper of the rains. It will not rain until I say it does, because I serve the Lord your God, the God of Israel. If it doesn't rain, the people will not have abundance to sell to other nations. The nation will become poor. 
If it doesn't rain, they won't be able to grow crops and they will begin to starve. If it doesn't rain, it will create hardship and destruction for the land and they will grow weak. And it will prove that it is not Baal who makes it rain, but it is the Lord your God, him and him alone. And so the word of the Lord was spoken to Ahab. And then, just as quickly as Elijah appeared on the scene, he seems to disappear. He doesn't stick around. He doesn't make himself known. He doesn't try to get up in Ahab's face every time he gets. He declares that there will be a drought. He declares that Baal is powerless to stop it. He declares that God is sovereign and powerful and that he's going to teach Ahab a lesson. And then Elijah goes and hides in a cave. Prophets hide in caves, and they confront kings. And being a prophet certainly means that you get to confront the powers that be. It does mean that you speak up boldly, with courage, with conviction, that you stand up and say, the Lord is God. And it also means that you have to do a lot of listening and waiting for what the word of the Lord is. There is no written word. There is no Bible for Elijah to study. And so Elijah also spends a lot of time in caves. Because being a prophet, as much as it means speaking up, speaking out, it also means spending time in caves, waiting, listening, yearning for, discerning, processing, trying to hear and understand and be incredibly clear on what the word of the Lord is. As we embark on our journey with Elijah and Elisha, as we encounter different prophets and priests and kings along the way, I invite you to consider what your normal is and learn from these prophets as we go. Maybe you're someone who thrives on conflict and you are the first one to jump in, to speak up, to confront. You're not scared of anybody. You know what you believe. You know what your convictions are, and that's great. But if that's you, if you're the one who's the first one to jump in, Consider that Elijah also spent some time in caves. And so if you seek to be a prophet, to speak the word of the Lord to the world, you may be so eager to speak the word of the Lord to everyone out there who needs it that you might have missed the step where you have to listen for the word of the Lord in the cave. Or maybe you're a cave dweller, a cave dweller who likes the peace and quiet someone who desires to be at that quiet peace with God and neighbor. Well, imagine just for a moment what it would look like if you stayed in your cave so long that God gave you a nudge out the door and you were asked to confront a king. Consider as we enter into this realm of Elijah and Elisha, what's normal for you? Are you a confrontation finder who needs maybe to spend a little bit more time in the cave Or are you a cave dweller who maybe needs a nudge out the door? Do you need to spend more time listening for the word of the Lord and knowing that it's in your heart before you jump in? Or do you need a little bit more time speaking it up, finding just a little bit more boldness to speak what you know is true because you've heard it in the cave? What's your normal? Whatever your normal is, pay attention to the other side. Because prophets certainly advocate for what is right. They, are the, they, they were doing social justice advocacy before it was cool. 
Prophets are advocates, but they're also cave dwellers. And prophets are cave dwellers who are also advocates. Pay attention to the other side of what is not normal for you, both in the court when they confront the kings, on the showdown on Mount Carmel that we'll get to, in all areas of life. And consider what it is to know the word of the Lord with conviction, with steadfast desire that leads to action. There is the word, there's word, thought, and deed. If the word of the Lord has been given to us, is it clear in our thoughts and is it indeed acted upon? This is the word of the Lord given to us. Let's spend some time in the caves dwelling on it. And let's find the ways in which it nudges us outside of the cave to speak for the, God, for the Lord, the God of Israel. For he and he alone lives and reigns over the universe. Let's pray. Lord, may your word throughout these next several months and throughout our lives, may your word come to us. May it give strength to the weak, conviction to the uncertain, hope to the destitute, confidence to the timid, healthy hesitation to the headstrong, and a fitting breath of life to all God's people. May your word come to us, may you speak to us, and may we act upon your word. This we pray, O Lord, by your Son, Jesus Christ, who is the word made flesh, by the Father, who is the creator of all things, and by the Holy Spirit, who is the sustainer and redeemer, who leads us in the way of life. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen.